Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Pippet, a new podcast looking at migration from the UK. My name is Claire Pennington and I'm going to be your host. Our first episode, Seeking Refuge, looks at the journey migrants are and have been taking to get to the UK, seeking escape and political asylum. In the first part, we'll be hearing a short story by the author Hassan Abdul Razak about a Syrian woman who not only has to face the contradictions of war, but also contradictions within herself about the man she loves. After that, we'll be looking at migrants who are trying to get to the UK in Calais and the terrible conditions in which they live. And finally, we'll be completing the journey with a real-life story from refugee Iyad Zina who will take us all the way from Syria to Egypt and to the UK itself. Part 1. The Ship No One Wanted by Hassan Abdul Razak. Oh my God, he is so gorgeous. So, so gorgeous. He has curly hair a chiseled chin and a thin beard. Not terrorist beard, not hipster beard, but Professor Beard. Young Professor Beard. And the kindest of smiles. Kamal, that's his name. Professor Kamal. He taught me English literature at the university before the war and I was so... so... It's a cliché, I know. To fall in love with your teacher, it's a cliché, but then clichés happen, right? Let me tell you the story of how I fell in love with him. The Israelis were bombing the Palestinians. I know, not the best start for a love story. Anyway, we were watching this on TV, the bombing. In those days, we Syrians had the luxury of watching wars on TV, never imagining for a second that these sorts of catastrophes would happen here. As usual, everyone was fired up. Outside restaurants, the owners would lay down Israeli flags for passers-by to step on. Everyone was proper angry, as usual. But Professor Kamal told us a story, a dangerous story because it could have been misconstrued as being sympathetic to the enemy. He told us about Jews who tried to flee Nazi Germany during the Second World War. Things were already very bad for them at home, so they got on a ship that sailed to Cuba, They were hoping to get from there to America, and that ship sailed halfway around the world, but it wasn't allowed to dock in Cuba. It then sailed towards Florida, hoping for a better result, but once again, they were turned away. No one wanted the Jewish refugees. The captain had no choice but to sail back to Europe. Many of those on board ended up being murdered in the Holocaust. Why did Professor Kamal tell us this story? I guess he wanted us to see another side to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That the Jewish narrative, the reason why the Jews ended up in Palestine, was not trivial. It was really the first time I saw the Jews as victims rather than aggressors. The story was messed with my head and I kept thinking about it over and over. And that also meant that I couldn't get gorgeous Kamal, the teacher who dared to be different, out of my head either. One night, I dreamt 
that I was in Kamal's house and he was teaching me one of Shakespeare's sonnets. We were sitting on these uncomfortable wooden chairs and he could see that my back was hurting so he said, let's move to the sofa. And now we were on the sofa together and then the dream just kind of, you know, uh, changed <laughs> the way dreams do. And we were no longer on the sofa but in Kamal's bed. And I remember thinking any minute now he was going to lean over and kiss me and my heart was just beating and beating and then the bedroom door opens and in walks Kamal's wife. Oh yeah, uh, he's married. I forgot to mention that. Oh, uh, and so was I. <clears throat> so yeah, his wife walks in on us. But get this, she wasn't mad. In fact, she was bringing us tea and batlewa on a silver tray. What a dream, eh? Analyze that, Sigmund. My marriage was arranged. It happened just before I met Professor Kamal. I first got engaged to my future husband, and that meant we were allowed to go out together to see if we liked each other before taking the big plunge. My husband didn't have a chiseled chin like Professor Kamal. In fact, he was a bit on the chubby side. In the facial hair department, he favored a mustache rather than a beard. We spent many afternoons drinking Turkish coffee or lemonade in one of the old cafes. Sometimes we would walk side by side in the park. I liked my future husband, even though he never so much as held my hand because he was shy. And also, he was a little bit old-fashioned that way. But still... I liked him, so when I told my mother that we can go ahead and get married, everyone was very happy. I really thought I was in love with my husband, until I met Professor Kamal. And then I knew what real love was. Butterflies in the stomach and constant dreams about being us together, often in bed. Sometimes alone, sometimes with his wife, sometimes with my husband. Sometimes with both his wife and my husband, who would watch us kiss, tongues and all, whilst they nibbled on batlewa and sipped their tea. When I made love to my husband, when I closed my eyes, I pictured Kamal. I felt ever so guilty afterwards and worried that my children would come out looking like Professor Kamal. And my husband would say, Reem, come here, Reem, stop hiding in the bathroom, come here and explain why these bastard children look nothing like me. Uh, fast forward to the start of the revolution. We heard stories from friends and neighbors about this march or that demonstration, but we never took part. No one was shouting for regime change at the beginning, but when the government started shooting at the demonstrators, that's when things escalated. We began to hear gunfire in the streets. That went very quickly from being surreal, like something you'd see on TV in a movie, to being regular and normal and part of everyday life. That's how war happens. It creeps up on you day by day. Once I was alone in the house preparing lunch in the kitchen when suddenly I see a boy jump over the garden wall and run into my home. Hide me, hide me, he pleaded. Then soldiers kicked open the front door. I thought this is it. They will shoot me and I will die. Just like that, with a half-carved aubergine in my hand and without having said goodbye to Professor Kamal. 
The boy started screaming, She's my sister. She'll tell you. I wasn't out on the demonstration. She'll tell you. One of the soldiers then turns to me and asks, Is he your brother? And I'm shaking like a leaf. He shouts again, Is he your brother? The boy is pleading me with his eyes and all I can do is ever so slightly shake my head. They grab hold of him and drag him, kicking and screaming, out of the house. The aubergine drops from my hand and explodes like a bomb. I sob uncontrollably. When my husband came back, I was too ashamed to tell him what happened. I'd like to think the soldiers let the boy go, but it's naive to think that. They probably killed him. They killed him, and it's my fault. It's got very dangerous in our neighborhood. We moved to my aunt's house where it was a bit safer, but soon the fighting followed us there also. The shooting turned to shelling. Entire buildings were pulverized. The sight of dead bodies became normal. I realized I had to flee the country. I had to do it for my children. But before I left, I contacted Professor Kamal. We met at the university cafe. I was so nervous. He had hardly changed, just a few white hairs at the temple. I told him I was thinking of leaving the country. He looked out of the window, shook his head with regret. And I knew then, I knew that he felt the same way about me. I was so nervous, I kept tapping the table with the teaspoon. He put his hand over mine to stop me and kept it there for a good five seconds. The most erotic five seconds of my entire stupid life. Then he asked me where I was thinking of going and I told him, London. My husband has a brother there. His eyes lit up, my favorite city, he said. And I begged him to come also to just leave this madness. But he told me he owed it to his students to stay, at least till the end of the semester. It was decided. Me, my husband, the children, and my mother were all going to leave. We packed as much as we could carry. My husband paid a smuggler, and <clears throat> in the dead of night, we got on a truck with other families, and we all said goodbye in our hearts to everything we had ever known. The truck was supposed to take us to the Turkish border, but halfway through it stopped, and we were told to get off and walk. The smuggler didn't give us explanation. So there we were walking with our belongings carried on our backs and heads. This reminded me of pictures I had seen of the fleeing Palestinians when they were terrorized out of their homes in 1948. Then I thought of Professor Kamal and the seminar he gave us about the Jewish refugees. I hoped he would change his mind and leave also. We walked for a day and a night at one point, we had to muffle the cries and moans of our hungry children as we edged past an army barracks. If the soldiers had heard us, they would have shot everyone. My hand was over the mouth of Eunice, my two-year-old boy, and I was pressing so hard I nearly suffocated him. Mum collapsed several times and my husband had to drop some of our food rations so he could carry her. It was then that I realized how much weight he had lost. Now he too had a chiseled chin, like Professor Kamal. I looked at him with pity. Sometimes 
you can mistake pity for love. We reached a small village and this amazing thing happened. The villagers came out of their houses and gave us food and water. It was incredible. It made me realize there was still some goodness left in the world. Our smuggler was now arguing with other smugglers and finally he came back to us and said that we needed to pay some 6,000 lira for the next leg of our journey. We were shocked because we thought we had paid for the whole journey, but the smuggler did not listen to our pleas. This fleecing by smugglers would happen again and again and again over the next few weeks. The truck we got on was very rickety. It broke down and we had to get out and push it. My daughter Rania, who is five, started shouting at the smuggler, Why do you do this to us? He told her to shut up or he was going to fire his gun in the air and the soldiers would come and kill us. My husband told Rania to be quiet and not cause trouble. I was angry with my husband for letting the smuggler walk all over us, but I also understood that if we pissed him off, he could just abandon us in the middle of nowhere. The worse things got, the more I thought about Kamal. I started to think about him obsessively, much more than I ever did before. It took several truck changes and lots of extorted money until we reached the border. My mother's health had deteriorated so much and she was running low on her medicine. The Turks were not allowing anyone in. We had to sleep in the open with hundreds of other families. All throughout the night, Rania and Yunus would whisper, Mom, I'm hungry and it took all my strength not to break down in front of them when I heard those words. After two days of pleading with the border guards, they finally took my mother in. I hugged her goodbye and told her to call me after she sees the doctor in the hospital. One of the guards said she could be given shelter in a refugee camp, but we could not go with her because the camp had reached capacity. Now my husband was clinging even more to the dream of making it in London. He said I could get a good job because I spoke the language and he could work in his brother's restaurant. I kept fantasizing about London. At night I would dream that I was visiting Notting Hill like in that movie with Julia Roberts and I would go into the bookshop but instead of seeing Hugh Grant I would see Kamal smiling that incredible smile of his and brushing his curly hair with one hand whilst holding onto a pile of books with the other. Whilst my husband was out searching for a smuggler, I asked this young woman, another refugee, if I could borrow her phone. It was one of those good ones that has internet on it. I told her I wanted to send an email to my aunt, but actually that was a lie. Instead, I logged into Facebook and went straight to Kamal's page. My heart thumped in my chest. He hadn't posted a thing since the last time I saw him. Oh God. Please, God, let him not be dead. Please, please, let him not be dead. Our new smuggler told us that he could get us illegally into Turkey and from there we would catch a boat that would take us to Greece. It took several days till we reached the shore. I had pictured in my head a boat like the one the Jewish refugees got on when they went to Cuba. It was nothing of the sort. This was a rubber dinghy. There were at least 50 of us. How are we supposed to fit in? 
The smuggler just shouted at us to get in quickly and stop asking questions. We were packed in like sardines. I was holding on to Rania with one hand and Eunice with the other, but I couldn't see them. The weather turned nasty and the waves started to pound our dinghy. I felt panic. I wanted to go back to the shore, but it was too late. We were too far out. I was so worried for the children. Neither of them knew how to swim. I was certain we were all going to drown. I tried to recall a poem, an English poem Professor Kamal had taught me, something about drowning, about uh, waving and drowning, but I couldn't remember the words. Instead, I recited a Quranic verse that a lot of people say in times of trouble. And give glad tidings to the patient, who when an affliction befalls them say, we belong to Allah and to him we shall return. When the waves got higher and higher and the boat was filled with screams and it looked like any second we were about to capsize, all I could do was recite the last bit of the verse over and over in absolute terror. We belong to Allah and to him we shall return. We belong to Allah and to him we shall return. We belong to Allah and to him we shall return. I held tight onto Rania and Eunice and hoped that all our deaths would be quick and painless even though I knew that drowning was anything but... We survived, just about. When we reached the Greek island, we saw a huge pile of life vests on the shore from all the other refugees that had crossed before us. Not all of them made it alive. The further we crossed into Europe, the more we clung on to that dream of reaching England. <clears throat> we are now in Calais, the camp they call the jungle one of the few Syrian families that made it this far. It's not at all what I imagined. There's no United Nations here, no government presence. It's just pure chaos. We had to make our tent out of tree branches and discarded plastic sheets. At night, we huddle together like animals, trying to keep warm. There are volunteers here who come to help. Kind people, but all amateurs. One of the volunteer lawyers said she might be able to help us get asylum in the UK. We have a chance because of my husband's brother, but it's also possible we could get turned down. We could get deported out of France to God knows where. We're so close to England. On a good day, you can see it from here. I was outside our tent one day trying to boil water on the wood fire when suddenly I saw him. Kamal. My Kamal! He was a hundred meters away on the main thoroughfare and then he disappeared. I ran after him. I, I did not dare shout his name. A married woman shouting the name of a man that is not her husband. It won't do. I got to the main thoroughfare and I caught a glimpse of him turning down a lane. I ran to the spot where he turned. He was nowhere. At the end of the lane was a small mosque or a ramshackle hut with prayer mats that the men had built. The mosque was full of men, so I didn't dare enter. I kept pacing outside like a wild animal, waiting for the prayer time to be over. When the men emerged, I scrutinized each face. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing! When I got back to our tent, Eunice was crying. He had soiled himself, and my husband was furious. Where the hell have you been? I thought he was about to hit me, but then... He just stared at me. He must have been frightened by the look on my face. Did I look insane? Is that what he saw? 
I took the diaper from him and changed Eunice without saying a word. The mood in the camp is growing gloomy by the day. The news is filled with fear about stories that terrorists might be amongst the refugees. This made me think of Kamal again and what he told us about Jewish refugees. There were fears that amongst them were Nazi spies. All these fears turned out to be exaggerated in the end. But it was too late for the people on the ship no one wanted. This morning I borrowed a phone, logged into Facebook and saw that Kamal had posted. Just 22 minutes before I logged in, I looked in the About section of his profile and he has deleted his Syrian address. Where is he? Could he really be here in the jungle? Or maybe he already got asylum in the UK. Maybe he is in London already, in Notting Hill, in the bookshop. Tonight is going to be the first night in a long time where I look forward to falling asleep. Hassan is an author and playwright. The recording was made by Sereni Saba. His new play, And Here I Am, will be on at the Arcola Theatre in Oxford in July. Next, we'll be heading over to Calais to see what life is like for some of the migrants desperate to cross the Channel and reach British shores. Just a quick update on what's been happening in Calais. Last year, the spontaneous camp, which many of you will have heard of, known as the Jungle, was destroyed. It held thousands of migrants at one point and was a place where many migrants and hopeful asylum seekers found shelter. However, the camp was controversial, not only because it was seen by both the UK and French authorities as encouraging migration into their countries, but also because of stories of cold, rats and terrible living conditions for the people there. Since then, migrants have been returning in their hundreds, many of them saying they're from Eritrea or other countries like Afghanistan. They're sleeping rough, trying, however dangerous their living conditions, to put the UK-French border behind them. I went there to see how migrants are being provided for, with the help of Help Refugees and another charity there called Refugee Community Kitchen. I found out what migrants can face in Calais as they live precariously between the Calais residents, charities and the CRS, a civil police force that's trained in road safety and other things like riot control. We begin with Chris and a group of volunteers heading to one of the main distribution points there, an empty field next to a slim forest and the old jungle site itself in industrial Calais. So we are on our way at the moment to sort of industrial area near the site of the old jungle where we are legally allowed to distribute food. The mayor of Cali tried to prevent us from distributing food in Cali um, and we fought back. They agreed that we couldn't distribute food in the site of the old jungle or in the town centre but we can in uh, this area. Okay, so in March, the mayor of Calais, Natasha Bouchard, was quoted by La Voix du Nord 
as saying that she was personally opposed to any humanitarian systems in Calais and that she'd attempt to stop food distributions in the industrial dunes area. Since then, charities have been allowed to distribute food, but as you'll see, the time in which they can do this is limited and the CRS presence is intended to put charities and migrants off coming to the distribution centres. Back to the van with Chris at the wheel. So we've been doing this for about two months now, but it could be quite hectic when we get there. The numbers there have grown quite a bit since the camp in Dunkirk burned down. So we're feeding like a couple of hundred people out there every day, um, twice a day. So our evening distribution is usually a bit more hectic. One of our major issues with this distribution is that the police tend to um, make their presence quite strongly felt. That's the CRS. So the police now fairly regularly come over around about 6.20, 6.30 and tell us that we have an hour left uh, in which to distribute food. And then after that hour has passed, they come over and uh, in varying degrees of um, intimidatory tactics, they try to close us down. Um, sometimes it's like a stop and then we don't and <laughs> carry on. Other times they have been taking food off of people or trying to prevent people from getting close to the table. However, we actually have the legal right to be there. Before we get to the distribution point with our van load of dinner, I just wanted to let you listen to another long-term volunteer, Josh, and his take on the CRS. They're, yeah, they're barracked and go on, they're on tours. Um, in the jungle they were on between two and three week tours, um, so it would be CRS from all around the country. Perhaps that's part of their policy, perhaps that's part of riot squad mentality, stopping people forming connections with the people that they're supposed to be controlling. In Calais there's like the CRS, the main police, the main like face of the state that we come into contact with. They are not police who are trained investigatively. They are there to disperse crowds. I don't think that all police are inherently bastards or inhuman or anything like this. Um, but equally, actively violent to complicit is, is my personal view of how they, how they behave in this way. They do beat children like they do like that is that's just it's documented this is this happens here just like to say that i haven't actually seen any video evidence of police beating up migrants they you know constantly tear gas i've seen police officers pick up clothing off the floor spray it with pepper spray and throw it on the floor and say like what you're going to do sort of thing to yesterday a police officer used his rubber bullet gun to knock a glass of water out of someone's hand this is the kind of footage I was able to see on some of the volunteers' phones and computers. So back to distributing dinner with Chris and the refugee community kitchen. When we roll into the field, I'd say there are about 100 migrants waiting for dinner. Some of them are already lined up to form an orderly queue, while others are sitting around chatting, and some of the younger migrants are listening to music out loud on their phones and have their arms around each other as if they're having fun. Most of the migrants are men, although I did see some young girls and women wandering around between the crowds. And many of the men themselves look to be quite young. In particular, those young men that the charity workers told me were most likely to be from Eritrea and were unaccompanied minors. 
With phones, playing music out loud, and some of the teenagers wandering around with their arms around each other, smiling, you could almost be forgiven for thinking there's a slightly festive atmosphere around. But really, this wouldn't be the right way to describe it. On the back of the van, charity workers have also brought a huge tank of water, which they've connected to a tap in the field. A lot of the younger migrants are the first to gather around the tap. They take off their shoes to wash their feet, wash their hands and their faces, and stick their heads under the tap in order to give their hair a wash. Because they look like they could be children, I wander out into the field to look for some of the older Afghan men who I can interview about their experiences. My name is Mustafa and I'm 25 years old. It's about three months that I'm here in Calais. And the life is very difficult here. It's, uh, we have nothing here. We have just food and uh, the clothes that uh, we are getting from association here. And uh, there is no any place for to take shower. And there are some. All of the people here that they haven't taken shower. I think from it's about from one month or uh, two weeks, three weeks that they haven't taken shower. And there is no any place to sleep at night. Everybody is sleeping inside the sleeping bag. And uh, again, police is coming and uh, taking them to the port center. And sometimes just uh, shooting a gas shot, something like that. And yeah, that's the life here in Cali. But it happened that police caught me about two, three times. But they have taken took me to the port center. And I was uh, 26 days in deport center. And uh, after that, they released me after 24, 26 days. And if you run away from police, if they got you, so definitely they will beat you. Yeah. If you listen and if you don't run from them, so they will just take you to deport center. I spend quite a lot of time chatting to Mamas, and he tells me that apart from going to English classes every weekend with his sister when he was growing up, he was also a translator for military services in Afghanistan. He said his older brother was murdered by the Taliban, and this is what made his mother in particular urge him to leave the country and find refuge elsewhere. She said, he told me, that she didn't want to lose another son. But Mama says that in Calais, people look at him as if he were dangerous. Here in Calais, any anybody when they see us so they are feeling like we are dangerous and they are turning their faces and they are just changing their way while they see us so just i request the people that uh, we are just refugees we are we came to uh, have a good life not to bother some people here other migrants at the distribution point talk more about the experiences they've had with the police, as well as the precariousness of their daily lives. Yes, my name is uh, Arun Sharifi. I'm from Afghanistan. I stay here in Cali around 20 days to struggle getting UK. Uh, so here the situation is uh, very bad. Uh, a few days ago it was very heavy raining in here, so we didn't have any place to hide in. So we just uh, take a garbage plastic bag on our body and sitting in a corner. So it was a terrible, uh, terrible situation. And the police is coming and 
uh, when they saw see us they spraying in our oh, eyes yeah, and we cannot see anything you know around uh, about one hour and our faces burn like uh, uh, fire very very much you know, they burn you know it was i i, I left afghanistan uh, four months ago so the journey is you know i i think the we face a lot of troubles but we non police you know spray us in the faces just in here so other places they didn't uh, spraying us also when you walking on the street so some of them is stop and spray then they drive away so some of them is uh, when you sleeping time at uh, four o'clock in the jungle so they just take your blanket and spray on your faces so they do you know when when they catch us uh, it's uh, happened you know it's, uh, a lot of time it's, uh, my friend is here so yesterday and the way we are together we are walking and he got the spray we, we didn't see we got some uh, medicine i have it with myself at this point aru pulls out a bottle of eye drops from his stained coat packet when they spray me so i gonna put in my eyes mm. so it's help a lot so, so it's a serum uh, physiologic it's not safe for us it's all you know when you not feel safe in uh, your country so there's a lot of problems uh, uh, we got there so uh, the environment is uh, always war you know whenever you want to go out so it's uh, unsafe you know you don't feel that you come back home you know so that's uh, the biggest problem and uh, i think we i left because of this you know so i have a uh, uh, private problems uh, so that's why i can't live there i ask ali why in particular he wants to go to the uk you know this, i have a, a lot of friends in england so in other european country so i don't know nobody you know so for me it's hard to go in one another country it's a lot of my friends with me they went to germany so they their relative staying in germany so minus my friends a few families they live in in london and uh, bring them home so i i decide to go there so because uh, I cannot go in, for example, in Norway. I don't know nobody in Denmark or Germany. They are, they are a great country, but uh, I have to, uh, I choose to go to England because uh, yes, I know a lot of my friends there. I, I don't wait, you know, I, I, a few uh, hours ago I was in the place to take, get in the track to get in UK. So the police is, uh, arrive and we are running away. So it's all the time. Uh, I'm trying to get in the night, in the day. So we are few people. So my two of my friends, the day before yesterday, they get in England. So I'm hoping to get in England. So and I'm sure I will one day reach there. At this point, we have to cut the interview short. Several CRS vans, which I've noticed have been observing the distribution, have now started to empty and the CRS officers are walking towards the field, holding their guns across their bodies in their hands. Back to Chris from RCK. So, yeah, they uh, always come over. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, they basically come over and give us an hour. 
um, start distribution, and then they come up at the end, they just come over and just kind of be present. Um, and then they realize that was stopping us or stopping anything going on. Um, so we now come um, really trying to hold this down. Um, sometimes around the table, sometimes you know, sweep through the fields and start checking through these papers. There have been times where people have snatched food out of people's hands as they've been coming to the table as they're here and stuff like that, which is quite aggressive sometimes. The police are just slowly sweeping through the field, gradually approaching the migrants, but giving them time to run away if they want to. But still, the entire thing is quite intimidating from my perspective anyway. There are at least 15 police officers walking through, and they are holding guns. And I don't know if you can hear it, but I could definitely tell that Chris was stressed out by the experience. Goal does to react to the which, um, yeah. yeah, it's very nice. So, it's quite uh, <laughs> <laughs> a sort of time. Which is mm. um, yeah, the tone changes very quickly. Yeah. Four, two vans and two cars. It's not as much as it has been, but um, yeah. yeah, just for sheer overmatch of. I mean, if there's a flight that breaks out, they sometimes crack out the tear gas immediately. Yeah, I mean, it's just all for show, to be honest. I can see some of the volunteers around me purposely smiling and joking and trying to keep as calm as they can, but they are finding it tough. One of our team. I was here the other day, we've got a video, like, they asked her for her ID and she had to go to the car to get it. Um, they were following her with pepper spray, like, the entire time. Which is, like, four foot ten. Like. <laughs> but it's just, uh, again, I it's intimidation. If you want to eat each other, you can eat in your... Um, in your staff, in the... In your house. Okay. Can we clean first? Uh, we have to. We need. It will take us time to clean up. Yeah, yeah. At one point, the chief police officer who seems in charge of the operation does come up and ask me for my ID as well. Bonjour. Okay. Vous êtes journaliste. Quel quel journal? Ah, c'est pas un journal, c'est un projet personnel. They check my passport and then they leave me alone. But after that, I decide to continue to walk through the field with one of the volunteers as he's picking up rubbish, seeing what's been left behind and whether any of the refugees or migrants are still hanging around. This is another Chris, also volunteering for RCK. We slow down the cleanup now to keep our Western faces around, but I also, we also do really want to clean up as much as we can, as quickly as we can. That way, this avoids becoming a problem that people can complain about. No one can say, oh, look, the field's full of litter because it's the refugees, blah, blah, blah. So there's this weird tightrope between <laughs> trying to be like, deliver, I don't know, on like a go slow and trying to be as efficient as possible. Mm. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but really chilled, everyone with really good spirits. Yeah. Like, even this stuff, like, a couple of this, good as far as it goes. Like, a couple of weeks ago, they were snatching out of lines, shoving in the deportation vans and stuff. Mm. Just like one or two to set an example. But so what happens whenever it's not so nice like this, mm. like I saw, I've seen it a few times myself, if the police come and like chase people literally into the forest, um, they just dump all their belongings and run because they're scared. 
and there have been like um, the other week and stuff there was like tear gas and pepper spray and stuff like that so A they've done their stuff because they want to get away from tear gas and B it's um, you can't get that you can't wash that stuff out basically like it's just completely ruined and contaminated I haven't seen any pepper spray or tear gas being used this time but walking around the field I could see that migrants had left their objects in a bit of a rush there were some people that had left pairs of shoes there was a huge bag of bread shampoo and a jacket and meals bear in mind this is the night before ramadan and the next day everybody who wanted to fast would not be eating until the following sundown so people were taking extra boxes of food to eat that night in order to prepare <laughs> i mean if someone comes up with a water bottle we'll give them more water but as we finally head back for the evening volunteers start to make jokes with each other about the police's behavior it seems light-hearted and maybe it's just me but I also think that lightheartedness kind of betrays how stressful the situation can be, not just for the migrants, but for the volunteers themselves. Um, I wonder if the guys who hold the guns like feel really good about themselves. I know. Like, like you know, like, yeah, I'm the one holding the gun today. If they, like, if, they, if they coordinate, like, today yeah. I hold the gun, tomorrow yeah. you get to hold the gun. They have a rota just yeah, for like, Yeah, it's like a rota, like we do. Instead of being on vice, you Yeah, on right. <laughs> And Josh, do you remember the guy we were speaking to earlier from Help Refugees? He also told me about some other incidences that sounded a bit more serious, like police not really understanding when they needed to help minors, as in people under 18. Um, we had a confrontation in uh, Dunkirk where a police officer refused to take a child into protection um, and left a 13-year-old on the street for the night. It's also worth noting that a lot of the volunteers here are British, this means that their contact with the police can be quite fraught, not least because they don't have the language or necessarily understand the culture of how French people deal with police. By the way, Help Refugees and Refugee Community Kitchen work with French charities as well. There's Utopia 56, which goes out at night on what they call maraudes and helps migrants in the dead of night, especially children. There's also L'Auberge, and Josh said to me that having French volunteers alongside them is a great help these days. And we said, like, the people I was with, if I was there, I wouldn't have known that was against the law. Mm. They knew this. They could communicate with this with the police officer. They could plead on camera that this was against the law, record all the information. So, again, it's a British-French thing. And, um, and that's, again, not just language, that's culture. I would know how to communicate. I'd know how much I can peacefully confront a, a British police officer. I don't know that in France. I don't. But he also can understand why there are so many British volunteers coming to Calais. Not least because the British government, at least in part, pays for protection and for policing along the border. In 2014, the British government committed £12 million to tackling migration at Calais. The government then said it would pay over £7 million for new measures. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's arbitrary that the British border starts here, so... I mean, it's, hmm, it's an interesting one because, I mean, we pay for it. And while everyone was laughing at Donald Trump for talking about building a wall, we'd already finished ours. Um, I mean, that says it all, really, to me. We pay for the police force here. We can, this is the thing, we, people have this expression of, like, France police, French police are really violent and all this, but they are paid for by the British state. Like, mm. if, 
we are complicit like as a country. I think that's why it leads to so many volunteers out here, because we are responsible for this. We're in France, but we're in France because of some arbitrary um, border regulations in this way. Next up, the story of a refugee who made it to Britain. This is Iad's story. Um, I grew up in Damascus. We are five brothers and two sisters. I'm the oldest one. And my mom always, she was giving us all her caring and she was just focusing on teaching us and looking after us. And just all the time we have to study, go to schools and come back again eat and then study and go. like even the weekend you have to study you have to go to computers uh, uh, courses you have to go to english courses you have to improve yourself and my father his responsibility was to bring and send some money from saudi arabia <laughs> because as you know lots of Syrians used to go to work in arab gulf countries emirat and saudi because assad regime they didn't leave lots of money for Syrians because they took most of the money to themselves I asked Iyad what he remembered about growing up in Syria, particularly under Assad, and before that, his father, Hafez al-Assad, who was president of Syria from 1971 to 2000, after which his son took over. I was always uh, saying I hate Syria, only from Syria, because I was always realising that, especially when I was uh, studying at the secondary school, Lots of my friends, they had uh, a car with a driver and uh, they can get the petrol free and just because their fathers, uh, they work in the military. Uh, most of them from Alawi, uh, you know, Alawi, they are part of Shia. So I was always asking myself, why those people, they have everything and we don't have anything. And why my father, he is living very far to get some money for us. Iyad is a Sunni. While the ruling minority in Syria is Alawi, a group that formed part of another branch of Islam. Protests in Syria asking for a change of law and democracy began in this context, when Iyad was in his fourth year at university. I was, I think, in my fourth year, in one day. I didn't watch any news. Um, I wasn't interested to even open the TV to, to hear any news at all. But just we were sitting with friends and one of them, he was Alawi, and he said, they are d- demonstrating, they want to drop the regime. I said, okay, what, that does it, what does it mean, drop the regime? They said, like, they will change the president. I said, oh, cool, so we can do the same. <laughs> I didn't tell him that because I can't tell him that. I went just straight away, I opened the TV and I saw on Al Jazeera, Egyptians, they are in Tahrir Square and they are demonstrating, they want to drop the regime. Oh my God, so we can't do that in Syria? Why we didn't do it? A few days after that, I heard people in Dara, in, a, in, a, in a southern of Syria, they did demonstration and they did the same in Homs. And who, was, who came to say that? This friend, who is Alawi, who was my best friend. Then I started to be interesting to know what's happening. Iyad was clearly interested in Syria change in government. But when Iyad's dad came back to Syria to visit him at the beginning of the protests there, their first instinct was to run away from the protesters. When my father came from Saudi Arabia, I went with him to pray uh, uh, to pray in Juma. We pray on Friday. 
And after Friday praying, I saw lots of guys, they went out of the mosque and they started. And I saw that my father, he said, don't, don't do anything. Let's go to, uh, to our home. But after a few hours, we went out and we saw lots of passes. Sure for the regime, the security. They came and they took lots of guys. To the, sure, they took them to the prison. So I was very scared to do that in Syria, but there is people who did it. I was very jealous, like, I want to go to do that, but I'm so scared. If, they, if I would do that, they would take me. After the Syrian government's brutal response towards the protesters, fighting started breaking out between the government forces and the newly formed Free Syrian Army, and Iyad decided to stay. We heard how much his family cared about his studies as a child, well, now he's determined to get his dentistry qualifications in Damascus, even as war worsened. To give you a sense of how much this degree mattered to him, two of his dentistry books and a mould of his teeth are some of the few objects he still has with him to this day. Then nothing happened, but we started to, to, to hear about they shot it here, they killed people here, they killed people here. This is what they will do. I don't know why I was very brave. Even I, like the place where I was living, they were bumping here. Like in any time, they will move from here to here and they will bump here and it will be over my head. No, no, I felt very, very bad. Iyad then started to join in demonstrations, even though he says he was still afraid. At the time, I just thought about, we want this regime to drop. Even if I will die, I don't care. But to want this regime to drop. I was always scared. I was always running. Like, like going, oh, there's demonstration here. I will go like just five minutes to say, fuck you, Assad. Don't want you then. Okay, <laughs> we're done. But I will not stand like some guy. They were standing for two, three hours demonstrating. But I couldn't do it. And I think understandably so. At this time, his immediate family, his brothers and sisters and parents, who were all by now in Saudi Arabia, asked him to go into Altal to bring other family members, aunties and grandparents, into Yobar and Damascus itself. This was because his family had seen a report on the news suggesting that the area where his grandparents and aunties lived was going to be bombed. But when Iyad got there, he himself was trapped in there with them for five days. We waited like a few hours and like around 4am, I remember when they cut it, the electricity and water and everything and they started to bomb. And nobody can leave the, the city now. Nobody. Uh, people, they tried to go out from the city, they couldn't. And I remember when we went by car, and we tried to go from this city because they surrounded it by the, what they call it, the tanks. Yeah. Uh, we were asking them, and uh, lots of ladies, they were with us, and they said, and uh, they asked them, they said no, and they started to shoot on the air and they said if you will not go again we will we will kill you i can't forget that there were ladies crying and tell them please just let us to go out no you will get killed inside eventually iad and his family managed to escape and iad actually had to contact a friend of his in the syrian army that's assad's forces to help get him out then after one week, I went to the city and I saw like, oh my God, can you imagine? It was like a place, I don't know how can I explain it in English. Like, all buildings, 
plaque because they were bombing there lots of building destroyed or even mosques they destroyed it all pharmacists they burn it burn the pharmacist burn it hospitals burn it with everything inside it mm-hmm. like which kind of hating they have here the smell? smell oh my god something terrible horrible i can't explain it because lots of people killed in the streets and um, they were collecting them to find a place to what they put to say it bury them you bury them yeah at this point iad knew it was time to get out not only had he been participating in demonstrations he was also about to sit his final exams and after that he'd be eligible for conscription into the assad regime's army After leaving Syria, Iyad took a flight from Beirut to Cairo and spent two years in Egypt, which he described as one of the best times of his life. But that too was doomed to end. He said his situation changed after the democratically elected religious government, the Muslim Brotherhood, was ousted by Sisi in a military coup in 2013. According to Iyad, from that point onwards, Syrians were no longer welcome, and he was turned down when he applied to renew his visa. After that, he also applied for a student visa to go to Canada, but he was also turned down. So he eventually took the decision to get on a boat and go to Italy, against the wishes of his family. The first step was go to Alexandria, where he waited in a small room for over a week to be smuggled onto a boat to Libya, which would carry on to Italy. He took us to, um, to a boat. Uh, at the first boat we arrived it was night it was a big jungle we we went we walked for long then we arrived to a, a boat and they said you have to walk in the water we walked and the water was coming to my shoulder we were four Syrians and 30 egyptians under 18 egyptians they came from very small villages and they tried tried to go to europe oh my god i can't forget i will not forget this day this night and on this in the sea it was night you can't see anything and they took us to us another boat and me and with other seniors we were holding each other hugging each other yeah yeah, yeah. we were very scared and like everyone he was taking a small mobile with him and we were like putting something because we know we will walk in the water and some money like and putting it in some places because we know that maybe they will steal our money so you had put it in waterproof bags yeah, and yeah, hidden yeah, it yeah, yeah. yeah. And then in the morning, we arrived to, we supposed to see a big ship will take us to Italy. We saw a small wooden boat. Iyad showed me a photo of this boat, which he managed to take later. It's a small wooden fishing vessel with a hull and a tiny steering room protected by a roof. It looked in terrible condition, with paint peeling off and little space, even for a small crew. In the end, he said about 400, roughly half from African countries and half Syrian, were crammed into it. They were at sea for seven days and Iyad explained that he believed those on the top floor of the boat, exposed to the sun, were close to dying during the journey. Each day, they were each given Malawi, which is a kind of sweetbread made from palm dates, and one cup of water to drink in the sweltering summer heat. The smugglers said, do we have to call the Italian Red Cross? And they sent up a ship from German one but the German ship they came to check on us and unfortunately they asked who was on the boat we said we had some Egyptian they said then you have to go back to Egypt they didn't do anything and then they sent another 
ship, it was Korean ship. That time, we didn't have any food and any water or anything. And all kids, they were crying because it was very hot and no water. And ladies, they were like disappointed, like, like we will die. And even the Korean ship, they tried to get close to us and they couldn't because if they will come close, they will sink. They started to drop, uh, what they call it, ropes. And some Syrians guy, they started to swim to get these ropes. But it was so difficult. But that time I remember when I just took a corner and I slept and I thought my life will finish here. And just after a few hours, I saw our ship is very, both very close to this ship. And I saw they are sending stairs. And people, they started to go to this ship and they were throwing water because all people, they were very thirsty and they were saying water, water, water. And they were, because 400, it will take time to get all the 400 to this ship. I asked Iyad about the smugglers, particularly because of another story he told me. He said that the Korean ship also rescued two other men who were found swimming in open water. These Syrian men, he said, had been on a boat in Libya with 500 people. The smugglers there had tried to force more people on the boat. And when the migrants refused, the smugglers purposefully capsized it. The two men had been swimming in open water with working life vests for two days and were thought to be the only survivors. And just to those two, 500, and those two guys, they had life jacket they were holding with their life jacket with other five people and they were swimming in the mediterranean sea from two days and they said people because who were holding they they were tired they died how how do you feel about the smugglers when you thought you were going to be in a safe boat and you thought that maybe you were paying more money to get in a safer boat how do you feel about them now everyone paid two thousand american dollar I didn't think about these things that time. I was just thinking about my life and if I will get to Europe or no. I will not think about them. Like, if you will say something, they will kill you. They will just take you and they will, th they will throw you. That's it. They're not humans. Do you think they, the people who do these things, they are humans? They are not humans. What happened to them? Did they get on the, on the Korean boat with you? Yeah, but they changed their clothes when we are, when this Korean ship came and they asked us to say they are Syrians and they tried to be with Syrians, smuggled with Syrians and even when we arrived to Italy they tried to be with Syrians Why didn't you say anything when you got on the ship? Why didn't anyone say anything when they got on about the ship? About them? Yeah We were tired and we were thinking about a million things like and at least they they we arrived. Like when you will arrive, you will not think about these things. You arrived. Like there's more important thing to think about it. So after we arrived to Italy, after we changed our clothes and everything, uh, we, we had to leave because if the Italian police will come, they will take our fingerprint, then we will not be able to apply as asylum seekers in any other country. Iyad is referring to the Dublin Convention, agreed between EU countries in 1990. This has given European countries the right to almost completely dismiss asylum cases by sending them to another European country through which they arrived there. And there they have to be processed. Next, Iyad went to Paris, and along the whole journey it struck me how he was able to rely on old Syrian friendships to travel and find safe places to stay. Here he is showing me a picture of him and old friends in Paris. And this is the... in Paris? 
Those family, they were my neighbor in Syria. Ah, that's you guys in front of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Gosh, it must have been so strange seeing them in Paris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are, we are never in Syria. Then we met in Paris. But he had decided to try and come to the UK. And he tried to do it from Brussels. As he said, it'd be more difficult to get caught. After working for two months in a Syrian business, he raised enough money to pay a smuggler to help him get to England. And he asked me to pay £2,000. And after a big, long discussion, he accepted to get just 1,000 euro. Uh, he used to come every evening, every night to Bruxelles Garden North Station to take me to a parking where I knocked on the door and the driver opened the lorry supposed to come to England. Iyad was smuggled into at least five different lorries, one of which he got out of voluntarily because he was locked into the back of a fridge. And I, um, I got off. And uh, to be honest, it was it was very cold because it was a fridge. Mm. I don't know. I think it had meat or fish. I don't know. I didn't smell anything, but it was like very, 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 very cold. What were you wearing the whole time? Oh, no, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What like just wearing? my normal clothes. It was very cold. I was freezing. The fourth day, Lori went to a Syrian factory in Brussels. So can you imagine I'm inside and I'm just hearing people that are speaking Syrians. And then when they opened the lorry, I was like, where am, where am I? Like, then when they opened the lorry and just I discovered I'm in a Syrian factory in Brussels and all people that speak Syrian. And they said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm, I'm, I want to go to England. I said, but this is, this story is not going to England. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Lori didn't even leave Brussels. Fifth time. From Brussels again, everything was strange that night because the lorry driver, he drove around 2 a.m. And even most of them, they drive around 6 a.m. He drove for two hours, then we heard something in French, we didn't understand it. Then he stopped, but I can't feel, it wasn't stable, like I can feel it's moving a little bit. I didn't understand what does it mean. And then uh, after like half an hour or let's say one hour, he drove again and we started to hear um, what they call it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, I, and like fresh air started to come through the holes. So you can feel like this is something strange. But I didn't hear like waves or voice of waves. And he started to drive, to drive again, and then uh, that Syrian guy, he just came beside me and he said... This is the other guy who'd been smuggled into the truck with Iyad. He hadn't actually met him beforehand. I said, no, look, this is my Google, like, giving me a whistle in Brussels. I said, no, switch it off and on. I switched my phone off and on and I saw we are in Dover. I couldn't believe it that time. Then after we made sure we are in England, and uh, he was driving, he stopped, we knocked on the door, he didn't open the driver, he called the police, the police came. They took us to a refugee centre in Dover, they interviewed us. Um, with other refugees, we went, they took us to a place called Wakefield in Yorkshire. But you know, all the world they are speaking about, talking about Syrian refugees. It was very strange for me because I thought I would find all Syria there, but <laughs> I found lots of other nationalities as well. Then, yeah, uh, after my interview, 1st of May, I got my residential permit 15th, 2000, 
15th of May 2015 they sent me a letter and they told me I was allowed to stay here for five years I was so happy that day I asked Iyad whether or not he regretted taking some of the risks he had on his journey when I think what I did I can understand how I did that but the only thing I can guess like this war, which I lived in Syria and everything I saw in Syria made me very strong person like I don't care about anything like I wasn't scared about going with a lorry um, like maybe it maybe maybe nobody will open this story in a few days I will stay inside I didn't think about it like even when I was in a fridge like I saw uh, videos like a few days ago about some guys they were trying to go by fridge as well and they didn't open the fridge and they died inside they didn't open the fridge nobody heard them I didn't think about it I didn't think about it just because maybe what I saw in Syria made me a very strong person and I will not think about it and even if I would die, it's okay, yeah. Lots of people died. And lots of people are killing in my country. So, okay. I will be numbered like them. Really, this is how I was thinking. I also asked Iyad what he thought about people that now say Assad is the best option for Syria, given all the different armed factions in the country, the death toll, and the presence of so-called Islamic State. They would say, no, Assad is okay. At least we were surviving. And we don't want ISIS. But... Just my, my question always to those people, who makes Syria rich to this point, like Assad or ISIS? Assad. If he left from the beginning, we will not reach to ISIS. We will not reach to all these complicated things. We will not reach to Russia and Iran. And if he left, but he didn't leave because he wanted the chair and he's still holding this chair. But Iyad told me he tries not to watch the news too much and follow what's going on in Syria all the time, as it's too upsetting. He's getting used to life in the UK. He's got a second-hand car and is studying for his IELTS English exams. He's also looking forward to getting a job in the health sector, something at least he sees to be related to his dentistry qualifications, which don't allow him to practice as a dentist in the UK. There is no place like home, but at least it's a safe place. I'm trying to enjoy it. Um, sometimes I feel I'm very happy in London, like London. And sometimes I feel like, no, it's not boring, but it's so difficult to live here. And it will take time, a very long time, to make a better future and to make a good life here. I miss Syria, and uh, I definitely I will go back one day there. I will try to enjoy Europe, but there is no place like home. And after these five years will finish, like... We'll see how life, how my life, it, my life is getting better, to be honest, but it's very slowly. But that's normal, I think, when you will start your life in a new country, that will take time to establish better life. Iyad oscillates quite a lot between missing home and being happy that he arrived here. He's the kind of person, I think, from having met him a few times now, that smiles through everything and tries to be optimistic, even in the most dire situations. But he does miss his friends and family, and the sense of home. Remember his best friend, the one who was pro-Assad and told him that protests were taking place in Egypt before they even began in Syria? He had spoken to him for the first time in years on the first day I interviewed him, this year in June. You don't talk from a long, 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 long time. I just saw today, uh, on in WhatsApp, you know now you can put videos? He put a video from Damascus, today! And I saw the video and I sent him, text him message and I said, I, and the video was from Damascus and he said, this is Damascus now. 
And I texted him back and I said, I missed Damascus and everyone in Damascus. And then he sent me, yeah, hi, how are you a long time? Just today, this guy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you this video yeah, from yeah, Damascus. Yeah, I'd love to see it. This is Damascus. This is today. I said, and what about you? How are you? And he said, I'm good and I'm not good. And he said, how are you? I said, I'm like most of Syrians, good and not good. Yeah. Yeah. This is what we answered each other. Just it's today. Like, <laughs> it's like you're talking code language to each other. Yeah. A little bit. How yeah. angry Iyad is with people who are pro-Assad in Syria. He still has plenty of room in his heart for missing his best friend. And when I ask him what his favorite memories are of him, he picks something really simple. Just the way that he used to imitate him and famous people and make him and all his friends laugh. He liked to imitate um, Ricky Martin, Britney uh, Spears, Celine Dion, and he can do it, amazing! Wow. <laughs> He's a very good dancer as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he imitates someone, he can do it probably. But remembering this way can sometimes bring him down as well as up. Yeah, I was always complaining I was about Syria, about Syria, about Syria, when I was living there. But now when I was just by myself and remember how my life was there, very simple and easy. Like, yeah, in your country you can have house, you can have amazing life, everything around you. If you will just be sick, like, million people will call you, will come to visit you. But here you are alone. Don't tell me, friend. Don't tell me, anybody. Don't tell me, nice people. Nobody like your close friends who grew up with you and mm. all those people who came from the same culture. They will feel... Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. You get me. Iyad left Syria when he was 26 years old. He's now 30, and his friends and family are scattered all over the world. Some he met in Paris, others are in Saudi Arabia, and others are in Canada or Sweden. Iyad doesn't necessarily know what other challenges life has in store for him. He has leave to remain in this country for five years, but at least he is safe for now. Thank you for listening to The Pippet, a podcast series looking at migrant life in the UK. I would first like to thank Hassan Abdulrazak, whose short story based on an interview with a Syrian woman in Calais formed the first part of this episode. Hassan Abdulrazak's play, And Here I Am, based on the real-life story of a Palestinian man who left a life of militarism and became an actor, is going to be an extraordinary play, and I highly recommend you go and see it. It's on between the 3rd and the 8th of July at the Arcola Theatre in Oxford. Tickets are available at the Arcola Theatre website. I'd also like to thank award-winning musician Liz Johnson, who has so kindly let me use her music for this podcast. Her piece, Requiem for Aleppo, as well as music collected by the late explorer David Fanshawe, has been used throughout this episode, and her own journey to make this piece will be looked at in a future episode focusing on migration through art. The artwork for the website has also been provided from artists we will be looking at more closely, including Fionn Gunn and Claudia Pokwa, both migrants who moved to the UK from Ireland and Ghana respectively. Fionn's recent exhibition, Views from Distant Shores, 
was shown at the South London Refugee Association alongside work by Sarah Rubidge in July. Finally, I'd like to thank Daniel Forbes. His assistance in editing the podcast was invaluable. He also designed the website and assisted with the artwork. Please visit us at thepipit.co.uk for next month's episode. And you can follow us on Twitter with the handle at thepipitpodcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>